0: Waves surround us. The light from the sun or the images on a screen travel to our eyes as a wave. The sound of the wind or my voice from the speaker is reaching your ears in waves. Radio, TV and phone signals, even the signals transmitting this podcast, are composed of waves. When we think of waves, however, we think of the ocean. I'm in Strandhill, County Sligo, one of Ireland's best-known surf beaches, And I'm meeting with Seamus McGoldrick, a professional bodyboarder and surf coach with Sligo Surf Experience. Seamus is running a surf lesson today and I asked him what he looks out for when he's planning his session.
1: Well, I'll have a fairly good idea beforehand, um, you know as surfers we check the, the weather reports every day, two, three times a day um, a lot of surfers are complete weather addicts. when well, my friend Suzanne um, was inquiring about bringing her group down um, a couple of weeks ago the first thing I was able to check was the tide so I knew I wanted to bring her at, at low tide and give her time to get down from Dublin and the tides they're not near spring or neat, they're kind of in the middle so and at low tide seemed to be a good good um, time because we have some waves there uh, and then when I looked at the charts um, I saw the wind's going to be calm and the waves weren't going to be too big so I was delighted with that uh, and then yesterday evening I was expecting it was like meter swell which is uh, just just perfect for for surf lessons a 12 second period which is a good decent period period is the, the distance the average distance between the waves which gives you an idea of the power of the waves and an east wind which is rare enough east isn't the most common wind here in the west coast but i knew the conditions would be nice and calm on the surface but the waves are just a little smaller than i would have expected and i mean that could be for any number of reasons um but it's just enough for us to have uh, our our lesson, and it's just enough for these guys to have their their, their fun competition out there They're today. Great fun out there. Today. Yeah. Again, my is James. You're all very welcome. And um, so the first thing I'll we'll talk about is just how we want to say surf lesson here. But today, actually, the wind is very calm, the waves are very calm, tide's nice and low, so it's actually safe as houses today. So are ready to go surfing? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So do want to um, grab your board?
2: Hello and welcome to the MetAaron podcast. I'm Liz Walsh.
0: I'm Noel Fitzpatrick. And in today's episode, we'll be talking about the waves in our ocean, the science behind how they form and the people that surf them.
2: Joining us today are MetAron's marine researcher, Dr. Sarah Gallagher, and professional surf coach and bodyboarder, Seamus McGoldrick.
0: We're delighted to have you both. I know I've been really looking forward to doing this episode. So thanks so much for coming in. Uh, Sarah, you are MetAaron's marine researcher. What drew you into that?
3: Um, well, I'm the marine meteorologist at Met and We have a very small marine unit, but we're very passionate about marine waves and meteorology and ocean meteorology. Um, I originally was an, an engineer, so I was in the instrumentation division in MetAaron and uh, I started going to Irish Meteorological Society talks and EPA Climate Change talks. Nice plug for them if you're uh, an amateur interested in uh, science and climate and the environment. And it got me really passionate about meteorology and climate. And I decided, yeah, maybe the technical side of the job, as much fun as it is, isn't just for me. And maybe I'll go back and do the, the more science side. So I went from engineering back into maths, applied maths and did a master's in meteorology and then a PhD in Ocean waves, swell, in modelling the oceans.
0: And Seamus, as we heard in the opening clip, you grew up by the sea. You grew up in Strand Hill, actually, same as myself. And so I guess the ocean is in your blood, really.
1: I guess, yeah. I mean, same as yourself, Noel. Um, I grew up in Strand Hill and I I teach surfing now um, as I'm a surfing coach. um, And so I deal a lot with people who are taking up surfing in their teens, mid-20s, mid-30s and beyond. And um, I guess... They they find to not from a coastal area. So um I'm kind of quite lucky. Um, now I can look back and go, wow, it was such a lucky break maybe to get into surfing when I was ten and bodyboarding, and um live beside the ocean in Strandhill, which is probably the best surfing beach in the country.
2: We're gonna start um this podcast with kind of a um the big picture and what happens out at sea. And so um we're gonna ask um you, Sarah. Um the first kind of basic um basic level question is like how how do waves form?
3: Okay, well, um, waves form, they're basically a, a, an energy transfer from the wind into the water. So when wind blows over the water, there's friction between the uh, air and liquid particles. And uh, this causes a transfer of energy. And uh, as this uh, energy gets transferred, Transferred, you start getting little uh, disturbances in the surface of the water. So, you know, the first kind of little ripples that you see, they're called capillary waves. You can't have uh, ocean waves without these capillary waves first. So it's, it's what happens is um, more if the wind is blowing over the surface of these capillary waves, like a lot of them will just peter out if the wind isn't, if the energy input from the wind doesn't continue. But if it continues because the wind is blowing in that right direction, then these waves will grow. And eventually they become surface gravity waves. And what that means um, is basically gravity is the restoring force. So, you know, they are returned back to the surface by the force of gravity. Um, or you can just call them waves. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's not just ocean waves. It can be tsunamis and also um, tides are, are surface gravity waves as well.
0: So we have these waves been formed, as you say, by the wind blowing over the sea, out at sea. How far can they, they travel from from the point that they've been generated?
3: Um, Well, they can travel tens of thousands of kilometres. So it depends really on the size of the the ocean basin. So, you know, in the Atlantic, you know, you can have a storm that is blowing over in the Caribbean or up in Newfoundland or something like that, and it generates wave heights. And uh, we will feel the effect of those a few days later in on the coast of Ireland, even if that storm doesn't actually pass over Ireland and uh, what w- we we'll usually feel the effect of the longer the swell waves the basic definitions like a wave height so all waves have these kind of characteristics you have a crest which is the top of the wave if you think of a very simple wave yeah. you have the trough which is the bottom and so the wave height would be from trough to crest and um, a wave period would be the time between the passing of one crest and the other crest or one trough and the other trough Depending yeah. on how you decide to measure it. Um, so, if so you're the, standing
0: at the shoreline, then your wave period, is, for say someone who's just standing there looking at sea, yeah. essentially it's how frequently they're seeing a wave come in and break. It's that.
3: Yeah. So, if you, a lot of the time the ocean's very messy, but sometimes you get these lovely, you know, you, you see them if you're on the beach, these lovely straight lines, these gorgeous sets of, of waves coming in. You know, it's a very calm day. And um, so, if you timed from when you look at a point, say somewhere on the. Headland horizon, or co- horizon, yeah. or well, it would have well, to be yeah, on the enough. side, close enough. And you count from when, say, the crest of that wave passes to when the next one comes. That would be the wave period. Did the longer period waves come yeah. from far away and then the shorter period waves are coming from a nearer thing? Is- yeah, that's correct. There's two things here. There's swell. Um, which is longer period waves. So they've come from, they were generated not in the location where, you know, where you're okay. measuring them. And what you have is shorter period wave, which would be wind sea, we call it, which has been generated by the local or nearby weather conditions. And it would have a shorter period.
0: Seamus, as a, as a surfer, I mean, say you're planning out your week ahead, so a few days away from going for a session or whatever. Uh, what kind of weather conditions or storm conditions are you looking out for?
1: Well, Sarah's talking my language, she's talking all, all those, Um, I mean, surfers, a, a lot of us are almost like amateur meteorologists, so, um, well, it, it's two things, it's two things, no, if I only have, you know, three hours on a Saturday morning to go surfing, you'll take what you get, you know, so maybe I would look at the weather forecast, three things I'm looking for primarily are wave height, how bigger the wave is going to be, Um wave period which also tells me a bit of the characteristics about uh how big or small the waves are likely to be and then the wind direction and then but there's also more subtle if i'm you know not just gonna if i'm looking to, to for certain spots i might need to know what the secondary swell is because sometimes there's one swell is finishing when another one's arriving and there's swells crossover um the ocean's a big place. There's a lot of different areas for swells to come. And then um, the swell direction as well affects um, how the what angle the swell is going to come in to certain parts of the coast. So like maybe a, a swell from the south would affect Kerry and Clare more, and swell from the north or northwest would affect um, sligo or, or, or um, Antrim more. What kind of uh, tools or forecasts,
0: say, for that kind of period, say a week out or something like that, um, you find the most useful
1: well i mean um i've been listening to some of the podcasts before and obviously there's inherent um limits on what, what we can know with regarding chaos but things are improving i mean ideally it'd be great to have a two week or a month forecast and i could plan my whole year around what the swell is going to do but it's just simply not possible um so for me it's very handy to know a week in advance what the swell is going to be like so i will have a look at the weather forecast and instantly i'll have a kind of a general feel for what next week's going to bring if I want to go surfing in Sligo um I'd be looking for a west or northwest swell if I want to go surfing in Clare which I just come from Clare um chasing a swell down there I'd definitely be looking for a west or southwest so um you can't choose you just got to see what's going to come and you try and make it's like a the forecasters you know you have to to try and make a decision based on your previous wave knowledge and
2: so for you sir like um what forecast tools um and indicators um do you think are the most reliable um, for a longer term wave forecast?
3: Yeah, so much like atmospheric or weather forecasting, wave wave forecasts, you know, are limited by chaos and, you know, really even the best uh, forecasts kind of go out to two weeks and then it improves seven to ten, ten days and then it gets better and better. Wave models don't resolve every single wave. Wave models take a, a, a bunch of sine waves, add them together and create a kind of sea state or an energy state, looking at the you know, how these different waves are stacked in each other to create the kind of messy state that is the sea. But what that means is you get a sea state or a, a significant wave height measurement when it comes to the waves and you might get period and direction but you're not getting a huge amount of you know, information within that uh, with those parameters. Um, in terms of models like I would be very uh I would always advise look at what the data source is for your models I know there's a lot of models out there there's so much information on the internet you can get so much free information and you know all models are wrong but some models are useful it's great that to have so much information but always look at what the source is so you have things like global models which you would have like very big pixelated so when you're kind of looking at forecasts particularly surf forecasts you know what uh what waves do offshore versus onshore is quite different and um, so you know the higher resolution the model the better but also then there's not many models out there that would really um forecast very well into the the near shore you know because it's a much more complicated physics and so that's where local knowledge comes in you know you have all this information and people have rules of thumb and that they use for their local bay or beach but um I would always say look at the source of where the driving, a uh, wave model is so. If you have a significant wave height of whatever four meters and a period, and you're looking at a, a website that shows a, a wave model, what's the source? Like, what what's the source of that model? What's the resolution of that model? And um, you know, I'd plug our own. At the ECMWF model um, you know it's it ru- it's a global model offshore model but it runs at 9 kilometers, whereas you know you have other models that run at higher or lower kilo- lower resolutions uh, so it's really important to take all that into account and also the f- the fact that as you transition from offshore to nearshore um, you know the physics of of the the challenge of modeling that of uh, forecasting that changes and you know from I think Seamus you know from yourself like what a a four meter wave offshore means inshore is, is, is quite different and depends on the bathymetry, the tide, the wind direction. You know, it's very com- it's it's quite a complicated process when it gets in, kind of to the surf break area. So,
1: well, I, I, I I kind of um, agree with what you're saying because from what we see in the ground, I mean, surfers are a small bunch of people who really depend a lot on weather forecasts and they're kind of weather junkies a lot of the time. Um, And maybe we get frustrated a little bit with, with, you know, um, swells not coming in as predicted and this, that, and other. And maybe listeners might be saying, well, look, you you get the data and you plug it into the equations and can you not get an accurate answer? And I think the forecasting we have at the minute is a mini miracle. Uh, I mean, it's completely transformed um, what I'm able to do, uh, how many times I'm able to go surfing and um, modern surf surf the forecasting has transformed modern surfing compared to where it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um, But you're very good at saying, okay, there's mm-hmm. going to be a four meter swell. And sure enough, there's going to be swell that in three days time. But the amount like the no, no two swells are exactly the same. It's a very, very big ocean. The winds are blowing a lot of different directions. Uh, it's such a complex, chaotic environment um, to try and predict what's going to happen. I, think there's a limit there's a big time limit and um there's kind of an idea then as well that there's really a human element in it because um as much as the forecast can predict um when you like for me i use it up until the day of the swell and then you have to get to the beach you have to get the eyes on the ocean you have to see what's going on and you know that's the, the human supercomputers kind of um coming in then to say, okay, this is what's going to happen. This is what I feel is going to happen. So that's mm. it's not really an exact science, but it's definitely a big part of it. It's like forecasting. Um, surfing is a professional sport and a lot of comments made on maybe uh, male and female athletic performance, but maybe from the outside, what's not really understood is the actual mental game that goes on in, in a surfing heat or in a free surfing session um, where you have... Um, like expert surfers like Kelly Slater and Mike Stewart's a famous bodyboarder. Uh, Mike Stewart's in his sixties. Kelly's um, near in his late forties, and he's still at the very top of his game. Like, how is that? There's there's fitter, younger, more enthusiastic surfers on on the world tour, but it's because of his wave knowledge and his experience, his mind, um, over time. There's a, a learned intuition there, I guess. You know, you yeah. might know exactly why you're making the call. But you're making the call. I'm sure, I know, I know surfers aren't, they're not really looked upon as scientists or as these kind of uh, very uh, well-educated, there's a whole mix of people who gauge surfing, but really, uh, uh, from the people I've seen, they're very, very tuned into the conditions. Uh, It's probably a learned subconscious thing. Um, I mean, you can get as technical as you want, but it it seems like that.
3: It's typical within the significant wave height of four metre. Within that, you know, the waves aren't all for it. Four metres. That's just the average of the highest one-third of waves or the significant waves. Mm. Um,
0: so it's the average of yeah, the highest one-third.
3: Yeah, so that concept actually, as an aside, came in World War II. Uh, a guy in Scripps, oceanographic, Center mm-hmm. in the US, Walter Monk, a really famous oceanogra- oceanographer. Um, you know, he noticed when you had uh, trained um, you know, looking at a sea state and, and estimating, you know, over 10 minutes, looking at, the waves like what wave height they would pick or what what they would say the wave the sea state was and he found that this was the significant wave height the high the average of the highest one third of waves. When you're
2: forecasting how how far like it does is it like weather forecasting like wave forecasting it can you like basically how how long ahead can you forecast um like waves like you know is it kind of it just varies. So so Depending on the situation. It's it's similar
3: to weather forecasting, but I think it comes back to this thing about the wave period. They travel faster, they have more energy. They're traveling in wave packets in sets. So within that set, you know, you have what you have is a kind of a distribution. So it's, yeah, Mm -hmm. of the waves at the front of the set are are tend to be um, smaller. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then as you go through the set, you know, the waves get larger. So the biggest waves happen in the middle of the wave packet. Or yeah, the wave, so like the, the envelope. Waves. The, yeah, the envelope is, is kind of like that. Something interesting to think about. So, for a storm located, say, ten thousand kilometers away, um, so swells with a period of around fifteen seconds. So they would be long period waves. They'll arrive ten days after the storm. Okay. You know, at the location, but something, but they will be followed. Because the longer period waves have more energy travel faster, they'll be followed by the fourteen second period waves from that storm seventeen hours later. you know, so they don't actually all arrive at the same time, so any small difference in the in the period will mean that the propagation of the waves um you know is is, is different because the speed changes, and um, the waves come in packets, so they're all have similar characteristics mm-hmm. and they arrive. On the shore, so, so waves
2: coming from the same system can arrive
3: at different times. Yeah, they can, uh, depending on on the period. So,
1: like what group would like, and then that's a very interesting. I've never actually heard that explained, and I think that's true because that's that's a something I've learned now today. That's actually really interesting. Yeah,
3: and so back to like the sets with the same say they would have a the same period, but you know what I was talking about with different swells coming from different areas. Is that? It's not it doesn't always end up like that on the coast like you can have this lovely 15 second set but you can also have just at the same time a set coming from somewhere slightly closer with 10 seconds and it mixes and this is where you, and you then you have local conditions causing chop and all this kind of stuff so it's not always that's why it's so rare even with Ireland which has this great wave climate you mm-hmm. know you know average. Uh, wave height off the coast in Ireland is like five meters.
0: Why does Ireland have such a good wave climbing? I mean, what's the reason that we seem to always be in the way of these swells?
3: North Atlantic, uh, the prevailing wind direction, and um, the fetch of the North Atlantic. And um, so, if you think about <coughs> the fetch, is the length, um, you know, that away that the wind is blowing on the surface of the waves, um, in the same in in one direction. So you know, back to the formation of how waves are formed, which is an energy transfer from wind to into the ocean, to the water medium, which is water. Um, And it propagates from there. Um, The fetch is basically how long the wind is blowing in one particular direction and therefore feeding energy into that particular uh, wave, group of waves, that wave sets generating a swell or generating local wind sea. With Ireland, you have the jet stream, um, you know, dictating all, you know, or directing steering, maybe, all these depressions, uh, low pressure systems, high, lots of wind, uh, generating large amounts of waves. As a surfer, uh, famous, I'm sure you're looking at storms that are happening, not just close by Ireland, although that oh, does sure. make a difference, but you're looking at something out in the Atlantic and you're going, hold on now. Like in a few days, like, you know, even if that doesn't pass, like there might actually be some really nice waves coming. Yeah.
1: Well, it goes back to maybe um, something we were talking about earlier um, about the difference between the way it is to forecast waves today, which is huge improvements compared to what it was before well, when I was 10 or 12 when I was growing up bodyboarding in Strand Hill. You'd be glued to the med Air and um, the weather forecast and what you'd be looking for is a big low pressure centred up around Iceland and the mm. deeper the low, you know, the faster the winds and the longer the fetch and you thought there was swell coming. Now, exactly what kind of swell was coming was a big mystery. So, you, you know, but now that mystery is kind of been revealed a little bit because of the more accurate forecasting. We see there why Ireland has this great wave environment. But
0: from a surfing point of view, is it becoming more recognised? from its surfing potential around the world I mean is, is Ireland you know you kind of have this image of surfing over California Hawaii is Ireland becoming one of those places now
1: sure sure that's that's a, a, a real um, major thing that's happened in the last 10 years surfing went through a big boom in Ireland um, around the Celtic Tiger um, before that you know in the 80s and 90s it was fairly underground It wasn't a huge amount of participants people might say laughed oh my god they're surfing in Ireland um, it's definitely not the kind of palm trees in Fiji and Hawaii type of setup but we've Starting really to develop our own surfing culture. Um, in the UK, I mean, surfing's maybe probably been there a bit longer, and the industry's further ahead. And then further south in France, Spain, Portugal, even in Morocco, you've had well-developed surfing culture. Um, in the last ten years, um, very happy been been a big part of it. Um, uh, there's a small group of people. There's not like a massive ton of people doing it. And of course, we have um pro- professional surfers from many other countries, uh, UK, France, Spain, Portugal, New Zealand, Australia, California, Hawaii. I mean, I've met them all, uh, South America, Chile. um, They have Ireland on their radar now. And, you know, I might be looking at the surf forecast today, but there's definitely pros um, whose job it is to chase the biggest storms around the world who are glued to, you know, all these different weather services and all these different forecasts. they they be watching the North Atlantic. And when they see that big, low, I mean it kind of stands, like a, stands out like a sore thumb for a surfer when they see that start to form and it's really, you really see it in real life, it's like a, a live animal uh, with all the different characteristics and behaviour you'd expect from a live animal, they're watching that storm, watching it develop and when they're sure, because they have to put their money where their mouth is, that might have to fly across Atlantic range, board carriage, you know jet skis, you know to, to put their credit cards down on the line so they've kind of got to be fairly sure, but it's always going to be a bit of an element of luck so they just have to go for it.
0: As these swells then, we've seen them generated, they've travelled across the ocean towards us and then they're coming in towards land, they're coming into our coast. What's happening to the to the waves as they start to, uh, I guess, come into shallower water?
3: Yeah, so as, as you get towards the shore, the wave starts to feel the b- bathymetry, it starts to feel the ocean floor. Friction causes the bottom of the wave to slow down, the bottom of this body of water. Um, but the water still on the surface is moving uninhibited. What you get when that happens is you get a difference in the speed that the this wave is travelling over the seabed, and so when that happens, um, the wave kind of starts growing in height um, and coming up to you know uh, you know moving forward at the top and kind of dragging back at the at the base of the wave, and this is um, how surface formed basically on the beach and eventually um the the, the wave will be- break. yeah the wave becomes unstable you know um so typically like a rule of thumb um to do with the wave height and the depth a wave will break um in water depths around 1.2 1.3 times uh, the height of the wave um, so that's just like that's an, you know that's like roughly speaking. So it'll become unstable and it'll 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 break. So there's you know it'll break in different ways depending on the slope of the ocean floor and things. Like. So you know the seabed topography, the morphology of the beach, but generally speaking, um, it'll get to a point where it'll crash and water will foam and you know break up the shoreline.
0: I'm just thinking in my head kind of of, a, of an analogy for that. I mean, if if you're say walking with like a big pile of dishes or plates or something (laughs) and you stop suddenly the dishes at the top of that pile are still going at the same speed that you're walking and they're just going to pitch over and fall over exactly and you're just basically you're continuing that momentum whereas the bottom of the wave so to speak is is stopping because it's feeling that that friction right yeah
3: it's it's feeling this it's feeling the it's feeling friction and drag it's being dragged it's being slowed down by um the seabed. And obviously this increases as you get shallower and shallower because more of the wave, you know, uh, more of the wave is pushed upwards uh, the water is moving slower and slower and eventually it just keels over.
2: And this idea of the wave breaking at like 1.2, 1.3 metres. The
1: bigger the waves are, the further out they'll break.
3: Yeah, exactly. So yeah. Oh, okay, so the bigger so the wave, the, the further, further out it will break. break. Yeah. So, okay. um, yeah. So and the depth, you know, in a beach, it really depends on the situation and you can have a gently sloping beach you can have a very steep beach or a really steep beach and if it's really really steep sometimes the waves won't break at all and you just get this reflection back i think uh
1: or the tides higher tides
3: higher yeah so it's it's it's, if it's really really steep and you know and you get also if it's kind of steep but not you know generally within one wavelength this kind of beach area you get plunging waves so when it kind of tops over. Um or you can get spilling waves where it's really, really gentle, you know, the top kind of spit you see them in Ireland a lot in beach breaks, it kind of spills down the foam, spills down the top of the wave. They don't actually come over like those, um, if you imagine surfers, you know, on a reef and they've got this lovely barrel and stuff like that. Uh, you know, that's more a plunging wave. Whereas in typically in Ireland, I think it's it's you do get those, but, you know, you get this kind of spilling wave where it kind of collapses at the front and kind of
0: Just to dig down. into that a bit. I mean, we've, such, no we've yeah, we have such a varied coastline <laughs> here in Ireland, right? So I mean, you must encounter a wide variety of, of wave breaks and and break types, right?
1: Sure, sure. Um a lot of it comes down to geology. So, um say some of the best places to learn to surf are Strandhill in County Sligo and Lahinch in County Clare. And um, or Ross Island and Puttaniqol, and these are nicely gently sloping beaches where the nice gentle waves come in 1.5 metres, and the gradient changes fairly constantly to a shallow point, and the waves come in nice and regularly and spill, uh, and they're very nice to surf. Um, for me and my friends who are, who are finished with their learning and we're we're looking for more advanced, maybe plunging waves, which are more exciting to ride, and um, all this kind of thing. Um, we might be looking for features on the coast, um, which would cause the waves to come from a deep water to a shallow water in a fairly um, short space of time. They're the spots we would like, but of course we have the tides in Ireland too. So I mean, if you're talking about you know wave heights um, and the, these waves are breaking in 1.2, 1.3 of their depth. Um, the, the tide can raise two or three meters vertically in the day in six hour period. So it's very, very often, and this isn't the case in other countries where there's surf, like in Hawaii, there's not a big tide. So in Ireland, um, on some of the breaks, we have um, one break, it only breaks in low tide, another break would only break in high tide, and another break would only break break on mid tide so the tides are are fairly they're they're a challenge but they're fairly um cool because they're one of the major predictable um phenomena in the ocean but one thing i want to say about the the big waves which is pretty interesting maybe i don't don't, not a lot of people know we have some breaks in ireland um and they might break on a 1.5 meter swell maybe three or four foot surfing waves when i say three or four foot there's kind of a it's kind of a mystery to to non surfers because we don't really use feet like other people use feet. So uh, a four foot wave for me, if you measured it with the ruler, it might be I don't know, I don't know how big, pretty big. Well, it's not not just four foot, which is only up to maybe your waist is it or a, chest
3: above head height. Is
1: it? Well, some people say you measure from the back and all that, but it's it's kind of not a, a standard foot. It's a <laughs> surfer's foot. Okay. So uh, you just have to take my word for it. Maybe I should use some accurate measurements, but you could have um, maybe three foot waves breaking. Uh, on this one particular surf spot, maybe it's breaking over sand or, or usually over a reef, um, or limestone rocks. And, um, but when a bigger swell comes in, maybe 10 or 15 foot, it's breaking, but it's actually breaking on a different part of the reef. We call it like a second reef. So, um, that the wave bottom will be similar further out but though that wave will only break when the wave heights are significant mm. to feel the bottom and to break in the same kind of fashion
0: so obviously the seabed and the tides are the more consistent elements when it comes to predicting how good the surf will be at any given spot and i guess though one of the more important variable aspects of that is the local wind uh, which you mentioned earlier Seamus so I know there's a general rule, which obviously isn't always the case, but generally speaking, that local offshore winds are good for surfing while onshore winds are bad. So offshore means when the wind is blowing from the land towards the sea, and onshore is when the wind is blowing from the sea towards the land, so onto the shore. When the wind is blowing onshore, it's blowing in the same direction that the waves are moving, so that's towards the shore. And it's encouraging the top of the wave to spill over and to break earlier than it normally would. So the wave break uh, it breaks before it can become steep, and therefore it's producing a less exciting, less powerful wave to surf. Onshore wind, you can also get this local wind swell or kind of choppy conditions generated as well. And these small waves can interfere with the main swell. So you're producing a sort of messy sea surface without any kind of defined clean sections of the waves that you can ride. On the other hand, if you have offshore wind, the wind is blowing in the opposite direction to the movement of the wave, and the force of the wind is blowing on the face of the wave, and it's delaying it from breaking. So this allows the wave to travel into shallower water and then break more steeply. And this can help to produce these kind of plunging waves with with a hollow or or sort of barreling shape that surfers like to ride. Um, You also generally have less uh, local swell or sort of choppy conditions when you have offshore winds, so you get this nice sort of clean, glassy surface to ride. I know that there have been some attempts to recreate breaking waves, you know, in, say, these uh, artificial surf camps and things like that. I mean,
1: how successful are they? Are they producing surfable waves? or? Well, this is the new, um, there was a, a this is a new thing in surfing, which is kind of uh, blew my mind when I, I heard it. Um, that, um, there was this talk, maybe even from, from the seventies and eighties. I mean, there's a guy called Tom Morey who invented the bodyboard and, um, he was an inventor in the seventies and eighties. And he, he came up with those ideas of, of a wave park where the new invention, of the bodyboard could be used. And I guess it was always a, I think surfers would joke about in car parks would be great to have kind of a control over it. Um, But Kelly Slater, who's one of the most famous surfers of all time, 11-time world champion, he actually had capital investment to set up uh, a wave pool in Texas, uh, you know, 200 kilometers from the coast. And, um, you know, because of the wave modeling and all the study science that's gone on, especially with mechanics of waves, which is very beneficial for people to know, they've been able to almost copy Mother Nature and how Kelly did it was he they made up an artificial wave pool where the bottom mimicked the bottom of a surfing break. And then they used a train or a train engine to to move a plow through wow. the water to create a bow wave, which would mimic the swell. And in this way, they've created an artificial wave, which is like almost like a perfect wave, which you might wait months t- t- to get, or it could be breaking out in Indonesia or Fiji or something like that. Then again, you're gonna have this argument between the purists now, who are no, that, that's not real, and it's not that's coming away from the roots of surfing, which comes from the Polynesia, um, the, the Polynesian triangle between Rapa Nui, New Zealand, and Hawaii. Um, but in 2020, surfing actually become an Olympic sport now. There's been um, the International Surfing Association been kind of campaigning for years to have surfing seen as a uh, Olympic sport, and it's going to be held in Japan 2020. Um, and then this wave pool technology has come on board just in time. So they might, it it would even things out for competitors because there's definitely an element of luck in competition, Mother Nature, um, who gets the good wave. So it'll maybe even help the judges, help the competitors to have more even, fair competition. So there's talk about bringing these wave pools into the Olympics. We mentioned earlier about the tides affecting
0: how and where a wave breaks. One of the localized tides you often hear about and and are warned about is a riptide. Now, I guess it's it's more of a, a current than a tide. But as a surfer, what are you looking out for?
1: Well, um, riptides are a type of of, of t- it's not a tide as such, but it can be affected by the tides. Um, a riptide is when you have um, white water waves. You might have an area on a beach, especially um, you know, might have an area where there's no white water, um, and when the white water Come in they're pushing in quite a volume of water onto the beach and those uh, the beach isn't flat so it's got areas it's got sandbanks, what we call so little sand hills it's undulating on the bottom um where the undulations come to a peak that's a sand bank and that's where the wave's going to feel the bottom more it's where it's going to pitch and break and um, you might have a deeper bit next to that uh, which is where the water will return get recycled back out to the last breaking wave um, it's naturally occurring in all beaches, and you also longshore drifts, which is a, a slight drift down the beach. This can make any beach hazardous for bathers and, and swimmers. Um, so, a big mistake people can make is if they're going out for a swim, they might look up in any beach and see white water here, white water or aguin where there's no white water. That's actually um, the wrong right. thing to do. Let's say, especially um, if you're you know not going in without a wetsuit or without a board, um, and the riptide tide will carry you out. Now, on one day when I come to the beach and the swell and the wind is calm and there's a neap tide, so you're talking about the spring and neap tides, the the tidal difference is the difference between high tide and low tide and a neap tide is when the difference is small and spring tides when the difference is large and that changes according to the 28th day cycle of the moon. So one week we have a neap tide, the next week we have spring tide, but also the spring tides and the neap tides will change throughout the year, so... Uh, one certain tide is going to be the biggest, biggest spring tide. Um, so let's say on that day, if we've uh, someone goes swimming and they don't really check their tides, um, even though the waves might not be that big or the wind might not be causing a lot of currents on the surface of the ocean, um, the changing of the tides, especially into the bays and estuaries, can cause such a movement of water that it can make it very, very dangerous for someone to go in. And for about 40 minutes at the very, very peak, so 20 minutes before, 20 minutes after, there's actually no movement, relatively no movement of the tide. The ocean is coming up to a peak. It's putting the brakes on, the huge tidal brakes because the the power of the tides is absolutely enormous. Um, And it's turning. Tide turns and comes back. Similarly, low tide, it's it's rushing to a low point. It has to stop at some stage and turn back. And that's massive turning of the tide. Um, But the two hours of mid-tide is when all the movements can happen, especially um, when there's a big spring tide. So if you've got three or four meters vertically, that's an awful millions and billions and billions of gallons of water have to come in and out of these bays and estuaries
2: mm.
1: uh, on the coast, depending on the and shape of the coast. Is that
2: when yeah. you're like most likely to see a
3: rip? Or
1: a r- the rips yeah. will start up in, especially with the changing the tide when the, when the water's moving because there's different bodies moving yeah. different. Altitude. And sudden
3: changes in the depth and the bathymetry will cause currents. Um you know so what you're saying about the the nice no wave breaking in an area it can also be an area that the depth is suddenly drops in so a exactly. person's out there not only uh, are they caught in a current but actually suddenly they've they've uh, they've lost the their feet on the ocean floor that happens you to know me. Yeah. yeah so it's you know a double bam yeah. you know so
1: support for people to remember what it's to do scary. in a rip tide um it's first of all don't panic Yeah. don't panic unless it helps it's is the first number- thing you do yeah um <laughs> And the riptide's not going to bring you out indefinitely. It's not going to bring you over to Canada. It's just going to bring you out to the last breaking wave. Big, number one mistake people may make in a riptide is to try and paddle directly and against it, which really won't get you anywhere until the rip's going to be stronger than you can swim, I'm sure. And uh, you might just be fighting the current and getting tired. And the rule of thumb is you paddle parallel to the beach, to a whitewater zone, and then you should be able to get in much easier.
2: So it's almost, it's um, counterintuitive. You're, you're, you're swimming towards... Like, quite water, you know, it's kind yeah, of... Yeah, well, that's important <laughs> you know? for any beach yeah. users
1: to know. And there's also uh, permanent rips, which be, might be mm. um, flow off a, a point of the land or some rocks underneath that cause currents. So um, the rip current currents kind of pop up, yeah. you know, as the conditions allow, but then there's also permanent re- rips. So it's just important to, to ask before you go out. And then number one rule, if in doubt, don't go out.
4: Yeah.
0: You mentioned the shape of the bay and how that can influence uh, both the tides and, and the and the and the wake- breaking waves. Um, what kind of what kind of effects are we looking at there?
3: As the waves come into the shore and they feel the bottom, they are refracted to line up with basically the slope of the bathymetry or the seabed.
0: When you say refracted,
3: yeah, so that means they bend, and um, so they bend towards shallower water. Things like yeah, that. Yeah, well, James.
1: refraction. How I explain it is, you know, you can hear around corners you can't see around them because the wavelength of light is so small the wave of acoustic waves refract around it so it's exactly the same with sea waves
3: yeah yeah so um yeah so it's the same the same idea um you know um a wave will line up so that it's parallel to the slope of the seabed um, and that's something that happens as you come in the coast because waves. You know, we were talking about um, waves generated out in the ocean. The, you know, North Atlantic, Mid Atlantic. You know, the direction of those. They're all coming. The swell is coming from a different direction. And um, so, the, you know, the energy is is coming from say the southwest. So <clears throat> you might find with a headline that swell is is sheltered. You know that yeah. you know or. Um, straight on to the beach so it really does depend on the direction but by the time the wave is breaking and coming towards the beach it has aligned itself with the slope of the uh, of the seafloor
2: so that's why you have that lovely rhythm when you're walking along the beach on a, yeah. on a day and you just they're just they look like they're all in a straight line and they're all just coming in exactly slowly. that's actually Whereas refraction
3: like, in action okay yeah. and then
2: when you go out like around the headland of the bay, I was like kayaking recently, and um, it's all splishy, splashy. <laughs> um, and inside the bay, we we were in the bay, and it was really nice and calm. Then the minute we just went out out of the bay, it just got really messy, <laughs> and it was we were going all over the place, and I was absolutely freaking out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it was fine after a while. <laughs>
1: and for a lot of the surfers, one of the main things we're, we're looking for, the weather forecast is swell direction. So, um, you know, there's certain spots that might work in a north swell. There, you know, north swells are a little bit rare, especially where we're up around from Sligo. Um And if... Um, so, or another spot might, might break in a west swell. So if I go to a spot that breaks on a north swell and there's a west swell running, you mightn't see any waves there. You'd be like, there's no, yeah. no harm here. But if you can back... When the north swell's come you could see a a wave there. And that's simply to do with the the sensitivity of the wave to the bathymetry and the direction it's going to come and hit the coast. Mm.
3: Yeah, so uh, a wave from the right direction might hit a headland or a bay and it'll bend around and so the waves will come in. But if the waves have come from a different direction, they might not actually be able to reach around. Sarah, the
1: amount of times I've got up at half six in the morning (laughs) and drove uh, I don't know how many kilometres to get to a certain spot and me and my friends were looking, at you, oh, it's too south, it's too south, it's not coming in, it's too north, it's not north enough, maybe it'll turn north later after lunch, Or sure, look, we'll go check the weather again, and fingers crossed, so. So Seamus, you've been surfing from the mid-90s, I guess, what's what's kind of the biggest change you've seen within that period in surfing and, and how you approach it? Well, there's actually been amazing changes in surfing, and um, I actually started off bodyboarding uh, in Strandhill, which was an amazing space for it, and then um surf all throughout my teens a lot of competitions um we'd wait up for the weather forecast and we'd see that big onion ring low over iceland and um down below iceland and you'd be oh my god and this kind of waves are gonna come this is gonna be amazing and uh, you didn't know what type of ways we gonna come we spent a lot of time just getting buses here and there and you know but now we can really really cherry pick the swells and we can really have a lot more um like this is going to be the swell but there's always that element but when I moved up to Dublin, then I went to college in Dublin, um, studied science. Um, I had friends from the East Coast, um, Fintan and Tom Gillespie, really, two really dear friends of mine, great bodyboarders. But because they didn't grow up on the coast like me, um, my idea of checking the weather and the, and the waves was opening my curtains and having a look at the beach, and I could kind of instantly tell. Oh yeah, I kind of know what's how big it is and what the period is, a bit of ground swell, there's wind swell or whatever. Whereas they were in Dublin, so they would be much more looking at the weather checking not just Met Aaron right 15 we have Fenmark we have all these different so they would because um, they didn't have the eyes in the ocean they would have to do a lot more um, study of the, the weather for they were the master forecasters put it that way and then in college I wasn't surfing every day I wasn't just surfing the weekends but we would that's when my surfing completely changed and that's when the weather and the forecasting became a he- bigger part because um, when you're young you want to surf every day to improve, to practice um, and as I progressed uh, on the body especially there was only certain days that I was looking out for when, when the bigger swells are coming with the bigger periods and the good directions and of course the waves could come in with, uh, but if the local conditions, the wind is too strong or the wrong direction. Um, it's going to mess things up as well so um that's when it became really important and then since then the weather forecasting and there's different websites like magic seaweed winger windy um you know even metern would have probably improved models and that's probably the biggest change uh, as well as the equipment but the the weather forecast the equipment can change only so much but if the weather forecasting gets better that's going to be a big improvement and there's been a massive increase in
0: the popularity of surfing. I know myself, even when, say, at a weekend, if I'm driving uh, from Dublin back up to Sligo, I might see a car on the M50 with the surfboards on it, and I'll see the same car then in
1: the car park in Strand Hill, you know? What, what do you think is driving that popularity? Um, I guess because, um, you know, if you have other sports, like golf is a great sport. It's outdoors, it's in nature, but it's not in the wild. You know, it's a manicured lawn, and you're definitely getting your, your fresh air but um, surfing takes place in the ocean. The ocean's a wild habitat. Um, luckily, we've no great white sharks and no nasty-nasties like that, so it's, it's, it's um, qu- quite a nice, um, safe uh, place to, to go surfing like that. Um, I think it's just that surfing is a connection with nature. Uh, I think that's uh, there's a lot of wellness to it as well. And of course, there's more media and there's more exposure for it too. You must see that
0: change in people as well every day for your lessons, right? People, I guess, are coming for with different motivations, wanting to learn how to surf. Sure. And you're seeing their reactions to maybe for the first time or their
1: progression? Yeah, I, I really have. I'm, I'm really, really fortunate with the, with the job I have. Um, I really, really love introducing people to the ocean. Um, there's always going to be a uh, guy or girl who's really want to take their skills to the next level and they're having a problem with their technique and they want to, you know, but in general, it's just people, maybe for the first time. Um, and so probably the best compliment I got about one of my surf lessons was from um, Housewife and she probably thought she wasn't going to be great at surfing it wasn't for her she she wasn't a pro within two minutes but she came out she gave it a good go she had a really good positive attitude and uh she didn't sit up on the board too many times but she had an absolute hoot out there on on the surfboard out in the ways with me and when she came in she goes that was great Seamus I mean that two-hour surf lesson was like a two-week holiday I think that says says a lot for people Uh, because when you're out in the ocean the ocean's ceaseless um it's almost like a bit of mindfulness you have to kind of your cares and worries from your daily life might just fade away and you're just focused on, on the task at hand which is trying to catch the perfect wave.
2: On that note, though, um, like catching the perfect wave, um, it can be a bit of a life's work. What are, what are the interesting places that you've been to um, to catch the perfect
1: wave? Yeah, I guess
2: catching What's the, best the perfect
1: place? wave is um, one of the things. But then the life work of someone like Sarah really helps that because whereas, uh, you know, 10 or 50, 20 years ago it was more of a stab in the dark now you can really narrow it down with, with the good forecasts um, I've been fortunate to travel to a few different countries I still have a massive travel bug um, next year I want to try and maybe travel to Namibia and Africa where they found one of the best longest waves uh, that you'll never be able to recreate in any wave pool um, off the coast of the skeleton coast in Namibia so I think it was found on Google Maps by some guys in, in the <laughs> States it wasn't found by uh, an actual surfer on the coast and it's just a random bend in, in, the, in, in some desert in Namibia that just is the perfect bathymetry for this wave. And so it's a freak of nature is, is, the, is the term for it. And I guess that's what surfers are looking for. Um, you know, I've traveled Central America, South America, Indonesia is a archipelago of 18,000 islands, with blessed lots of swell from the Indian Ocean, beautiful temperate climate. Um, and there's loads of places I'd like to go, Australia, New Zealand, uh, South Africa, you name it, um, Tahiti. But uh, I will put my hand on my heart and will say that um, of all my travels, I've never surfed better waves outside of Ireland. And so all the best waves I've ever surfed have been in Ireland. I mean, it's nice to go and travel and meet other surfers. But um, it's a little bit cold. But, you know, I have a good wetsuit sponsor and you get good rubber on you and you're, you're not too bad. Um, maybe it's because I have a little bit of no an knowledge uh, and that kind of thing. But um, definitely the best waves I've ever surfed here. And
0: Ireland is developing... A reputation because of people like yourself and others who are searching within our own coastline uh, as being a big wave location. I mean, how frequently, Sarah, do we get sort of big wave events here in Ireland?
3: Well, Ireland is in the path of of a lot of depressions from the North Atlantic, as we spoke about earlier. But typically, you know, on any given year, you can get upwards of ten to twenty mid latitude depressions, less than nine hundred eighty hectopascals crossing you know, either over or to the northwest or close by Ireland. So, you know, really you can get um, quite a la- large number of storms over winter or storms, sorry, uh, quite a large number of depressions or low la- low pressure systems. Um, and with surfing as well, you know, you get depressions crossing close by, which can then generate waves. So, you know, the between Scotland and Iceland you have this channel where a lot of depressions because of the jet stream end up passing through and that creates, generates great uh, waves. Um, in fact the World Meteorological Organisation um, so there's a new world record for the highest significant wave height ever measured by a wave buoy and it's 19 metres and it was actually measured 90,
2: 19? 19, 19. 19.
3: Okay, Yeah so like over 60 feet so that's the significant wave heights so that's not the individual wave that's the sea state so the high average of the highest one third of waves we spoke about before so within that there could be anything up to two twice twice that wave height in terms of an individual wave in that um and uh, that was actually um recorded uh back in 2013 and it it, I think last year they, they verified that it was definitely legitimate and, uh, 19 meter significant wave height. And it was just, it's, uh, a, a boy called K5 and it's just, um, 59 north, 11 west. So it's between Iceland and the United Kingdom. Uh, in terms of closer to home, um, our record significant wave height isn't far off that. So the M6 boy. So at the M6 buoy. So the M6 buoy is, um, one of five, uh, boys that are run as part of the Irish weather Boy network, which is run. Um, it's a collaboration between the Marine Institute and Met Aaron. Um, and the M6 buoy is far, it's 15 West, you know, it's, it's far off the West coast of Ireland and the highest significant wave height there was 17.2 meters. And that was measured back in 2007. um, I mean, I expect at some stage that, that will be broken. Um, when it comes to closer to shore, actually the M4 boy, which is off the northwest coast of Donegal. Oh uh, well. <laughs> yeah. It's 15.7 <laughs> meters on 2014. So that was that winter 2013-14, I don't know if any of the public might remember it, there was just storm after storm after storm um, and uh, there was a particularly big storm that happened and uh, yeah, so we had a huge, uh, a huge wave. Records were broken at that time. So in terms of individual waves, so now the modern wave boys are not only able to measure the significant wave height, but they actually record the heights of individual waves. So a single wave on its own, and we actually have a twenty-three point four meter individual wave measured in the twenty-sixth of January two thousand and fourteen. So during that same winter at the M four boy, and that's currently the record for the, for those boys. Um, wow. but yeah, but we did have, uh, we also get, uh, wave measurements from the Kinsale Energy Gas Platform. And mm. um, they have a wave radar on their platform. And during Ophelia, they measured a wave of 26 meters. So during Ophelia on the uh, 16th of October 20. 2017. Yeah. So 26 meters, which is huge. So uh, there's a, an analogy that um, we use in the marine unit, which is like double-decker buses. So the M4, the 15.7 metre wave, oh, sorry, the 23.4 metre wave, individual wave, um, we think of that as like it's five double-decker buses stacked <sighs> on top of each other. So just as a, um, you know, as an example, like you can visualise maybe what kind of a wall of water that would be. Uh, absolutely ginormous.
0: Seamus, if you're going to prepare yourself to surf one of these things, I mean, there must be so much preparation that goes into planning and executing something like that.
1: Yeah, um, well, first of all, when you're surfing big wave, when I go out surfing on my own or maybe surf myself, we catch a surf in hill we just head. I might head out my own, or we we'll go out and just paddle. Out. But the big wave surfing, it's more of a group effort. Um, you know. you're you don't go out surf alone, you'd like to have a few people there. Um, we're really lucky we have an Irish toe surf rescue club which was set up by um, Peter Conroy who's kind of a known now as a surf safety guru, he's a professional fireman. Uh, he saw the need for when this big wave surfing thing really took off because I mean there's been a big revolution in, in surfing in Ireland since 2006 and eight, uh, with guys like Mickey Smith, Fergus Smith and Tom Lowe were or three original, three amigos who took it on. Mickey was an explorer and filmmaker and Fergal uh, became Ireland's first pro surfer and Tom Lowe's um, another Cornish madman big wave surfer um, and they just blew the doors off it and really Mickey had been coming to Ireland for years he knew you know anyone who, who'd know the, the, the maps and the, the records they knew there was big waves the <laughs> potential was there but no one had to kind of seen it was kind of like f- photographing the Yeti you know everyone had heard it existed The rumoured has it I mean, it's great to hear Sarah with all her science and her hard facts and all that. And I'm, I just learned so much today, but there's always these old wives tales in the midst of, you know, the 50 year storm. And I, I mean, the t- winter of 2013 and 2014 have gone down in the kind of mythology of Irish surfing as a, an extreme a year so um, the 50 year storm that's from that cult classic point break right yeah but they didn't I'm sure they got it from somewhere else <laughs> from, from, from California because there is that like you know even just a drift away from the science there is that kind of mythology and almost mysticism with surfing it's a very um there's a lot of different layers with it uh, especially with the big wave uh, uh, surfing <laughs> So um... well,
3: you know, until 1995, when they actually managed to record a, a rogue wave, at the Droughtner wave in the North Sea, there was questions over whether these rogue waves even existed. The idea that you could break twice—you know—that that, that an individual wave could be twice what the the significant wave height or the sea state was, um, and the Droughtner wave was 25.6 meters high. Um, but the reason why it's a rogue wave is because the, the background sea um, state was much less than half of that. And so it was the first kind of confirmed instrument-measured rogue wave. And it proved, 1995, it kind of not proved it, it focused the minds again, people were doubting whether rogue waves actually happen and what the mechanism is. And so it was seen that actually, yeah, rogue waves exist. You can get these mythical... 20. Before, like seafarers stories of these giants that just pop up out of the ocean, completely out of character with, um, you know, the surrounding sea state. You think of the Karasaki wave, you know, you think of that image of just this, you know, huge wave popping up out of nowhere. Um, But actually, you know, this can happen. Um, and
2: it'll be do, to do with... um. A cumulative effect of like maybe two different depressions coming together at exactly the right time and and all of that water and energy just meeting at the same point. Yeah, a, a
3: whole pile of things can, can come together. Constructive interference or two waves kind of add together, mm. you know, happen to you're crossing seas and maybe something happens or there's a current you can't see under, you know, the water and it meets these waves and holds them up in some way. You know, and you get this massive wave kind of forming, um, but you know it's it's part of the nonlinearity of 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 the sea state. Um, but it's something that does does happen. It's by its nature, it's it's very rare, which is why it's mythol you know a mythical thing. But I I kind of think almost those perfect waves or those perfect conditions. You know, they can be obviously a perfect set with the right you know storms that come once in a lifetime, but then. You know, there's also stories about these massive waves and, you know, they they really do happen. It's not always just uh, some, some, well, it could be some guy exaggerating the oh, massive, massive <laughs> wave he surfed, um, but they do happen.
1: Yeah. Well, i read about that. Yeah, there's so like, you know, I mean, like oil tankers have gone missing and they got broken in two and there were, you know, there's always the fishermen were saying, oh, it was these rogue waves and they didn't have any hard data and they didn't actually maybe believe it existed. But yeah,
3: yeah, they <laughs> no. happen.
2: And Seamus when you're going out, like to surf a big, like like a big wave set or something, what's in your mindset? Are you scared to death, or like, are you kind of excited, or yeah, a mix of parts? Things?
1: I mean, it's like, yeah, of course you're scared. Yeah, <laughs> you're definitely scared. You're very, you wouldn't probably do it if you weren't scared. Mm. Um, but I mean, there's all these different. I when when the Mickey and Fergon and Tom really blew down the doors of the big wave surfing. Um, it's also when jet skis were coming in mm-hmm. as a part of a safety thing, to, um, because bigger waves move faster. And so they're harder to catch. So once they t- started using jet skis to bring people in on the waves and also rescue them, it really upped the safety, upped the performance. And um, it was very hard to do something when you didn't know it was possible. Mm. Uh, because, you know, um, after a while they found, um, well, they didn't find it because it was well known, but they started to pioneer Mullock Moore, um, Mickey and um, Fergal and Tom, and as well as Richie Fitzgerald, another uh, famous surfer from Mondoran and Gabe Davies, were the first guys to tackle Mullock Moore, which is... Um, the coast of Sligo where you have a headland, which has obviously survived the erosion throughout the years, so it must be made of tougher stuff. And just on this headland, just on one point of it, the, the bat's imagery is, is, is good, that the waves come in and go from a deep water to a shallow water in a, in a steeper gradient, but also a, a gradient that creates good surfing waves. Because there's waves all around the coast of Ireland, but there's only a few magical spots that have the rideable surfing waves, which surfers w- would like to, to go on. Um and this wave has been surfed regularly now for the last ten or fifteen years. And then yeah, when I see, you know, um on a two three, four meter swell, you won't see any waves at Mullockmore because it's not interacting with the bottom in the right way. The waves aren't big enough. Uh but then when bigger swells come in and we we, we start to surf at low tide now, that's when you see the big waves there. Um and you know. There's other ways that have been found in other parts of the world. For example, one of the most interesting ones, I thought, was the Cortez Bank, which was, again, to start off as a myth. And then, lo and behold, so the Cortez Bank is 100 kilometers off the coast of California. It's a seamount that doesn't actually break the surface, but it comes up to just within. So this might be to do with where you're talking about the rogue waves or these sea monsters. This is probably where they come from, the, the mythology. Mm-hmm. So um, they actually went out and studied the weather maps and found the ideal... Perfect swell. I went out and discovered this Cortez Bank wave. Um, because, you know, in Mullock you can get waves up to, you know, 10, 15, 20, 25 feet in Cortez Bank. I mean, they've been recorded up to 30, 40, 50, 60 feet or is probably where mm. the waves thing. And then if the next major thing was in Nazare in Portugal, where again, I'd before I would heard about it, Portuguese surfers come over and they told me oh, there's this beach in Portugal. It's got these massive waves and it was like this, you know, fisherman's tail again. And what they discovered was that there's a canyon off the coast of this beach in Nazare and the canyon causes the swells which come in straight to refract into kind of like a horseshoe so they actually interfere with themselves and and cause these massive peaks of waves. So the wave heights, the world record now stands uh, for a surfing wave ridden um, at uh, um, 78 feet. Yeah, I think it's
3: 80, yeah, around 80 feet I think it was
1: broken to 80 feet by a Rodrigo Cox, a Brazilian guy. Yeah. Um so but and then, now there's this talk in the surfing community about the 100 100 foot wave that's the new
4: yeah that's it's the new
1: aim yeah that's the new yeti and um you know I wouldn't be surprised Mullock Moor is 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 pretty much where the frontier lies um in Ireland but there's other what spots What about Al-Hee's
3: or Prowlers and there there's alleys. Prowlers
1: e- Prowlers was found as well I was one of the first were surfed up but oh. there might be even other spots now. I'm not going to give any locations but you know it is possible <laughs> the 100 foot wave could could be surfed in Ireland
3: Yeah closely guarded secrets the special (laughs) surf spots that work in certain conditions oh
1: yeah yeah, take them to your grave Yeah.
0: yeah. (laughs) as someone who's in the water you know regularly surfers are probably in a really good position to see how the ocean environment has been changing over the last few years and I know when Seamus and I were talking on Strathill Beach um, he was pointing out the some of the movement of the sand that you see there both annually and then sort of more long term. I mean what's what's Sarah, if if it might go to you, what's driving that movement of sand generally?
3: Well, you know, you have wave action on the coastline all the time. So you have a constant movement of, you know, sediment. So you can have deposition or you can have erosion. Um you know, an abrasion can happen. And it it's also to do with what the composition of the coastline is. Everyone knows about sea level rise. You know, it, it's projected um, to be anywhere between 0.5 to a metre by the end of the century. It's already, you know, it's already tens of centimetres higher than it was 30 years ago. And this will affect erosion on the coastline. So, you know, you have really really strong waves coming in the north atlantic um you have a creeping you know a, a sea level that's creeping up and so you know uh the shoreline is being more and more um eroded um you know and even if you think about you know um the shoreline and what it's made up of, uh, you know, if you get a storm surge or uh, a, with a storm, a driving wind, maybe some wave overtopping, and you also have the, the the fact that the sea level has risen, you know, it can really scour out or it can really um, erode quickly areas, you know, sandy beaches and things like that. Uh, in fact, you know, there's recently they were looking at the movement of massive boulders on the coast of Ireland, particularly in the Aran Islands, you see these boulders at the top of cliffs or, you know, just sitting on the the reef, the shelf, you know, right at the coast. And they actually thought, well, you know, they must have been put up there by a tsunami, something massively powerful. You know, how else would they move? But actually, you know, recent work by um, Professor Rona Cox and Frederick Diaz as well in UCD and um, have found that actually you know some of these boulders um they're called like coastal boulder deposits they're actually moved by storm waves you know the power of the atlantic ocean it's so ferocious that it can move you know these masses of tens, hundreds of tons, and it can move, shift them large distances inland and up on top of, of of great heights. I think what first happened was they were kind of marking these, and then between different winters, like over the course, they came back the next summer to mark the boulders, and uh, they had discovered that they had moved. But they also knew the conditions that had happened in the previous year, so they could definitely say what was moving them. And, uh, you know, uh, I think uh, in terms of the Aran Islands, like some of the masses have been uh, moved one to 26 meters above high watermark and also inland up to 220 meters. Wow. Inland. So these massive boulders. And so we're in a, you know, you're talking um, a car, yes, up to larger than, you know, a van truck, you know, like, uh, yeah, they're massive. If you see, I, I advise anyone to, to look it up, um, you know, boulders in the Aran Islands, if you probably Google it, you'll get some lovely pictures. We'll,
0: we'll put some pictures up on yeah. the podcast website of that.
3: So,
2: like, Sarah, how can we expect Ireland's waves to respond in the future? Um, like, you know, is there, is is our climate going to, you know, it's, it's undergoing significant change, so how is that going to affect the wave climate in Ireland? Will we
3: get um but possibly better surfing waves or is it going kind of <laughs> to yeah i mean um there have there has been a lot of work done on that and a lot of models run into the future um i have myself um done quite a bit of research on what the future wave climate will be for ireland um, you know it's not as clear cut or straightforward as things like temperature um because inherently there is uncertainty in the North Atlantic about where the storm tracks are going to lie and, um, you know, where the jet stream is going to move, how the melting of the ice is going to affect the jet you know, stream itself, storm I mean. location and h- how things happen in the North Atlantic. But all the evidence so far and even the newer with the newer um so for the IPCC, the next IPCC report, those runs are currently underway or have been done. You know, it's consistent that on average, the winds um, are going to decrease in the North Atlantic and over, over Ireland as well. Um, and of course, without the wind, you don't get the wind waves. Okay. So as a result, you know, we are going to have on average less wave energy hitting the coast of Ireland or less waves in general, uh, less wave heights uh, overall. Um, but that amount is not incredibly large and it's mostly seen in, in summer and to, uh, to a less robust extent in winter. So, you know, that will, you know, the waves will lessen. But I would say as a caveat to that, the North Atlantic is a hugely powerful ocean basin and the waves, the energy that hits off the coast of Ireland is absolutely massive. So even with that kind of drop, um, you know, Ireland is still going to be an amazingly uh, active, uh, way- it's going to have an amazing active wave climate and it's certainly uh, not going to not have really, really big surf waves. In terms of storms, like there is some evidence, it's, it's you know, by their very nature, extremes or storms are rarer, so it's harder to get the number you know, to get a statistically robust change. But there has been work done, um, you know, Paul Nolan in uh, iCheck NUIG has done a lot of work on this and, you know, there is evidence that the frequency, so the number of of depressions crossing Ireland will decrease, but that um, it's not clear whether the intensity, so whether there will be... More extremes, or the same number of, of very very strong events, but overall you get a, a small decrease. Uh, yeah, in the number. Okay, so storms. it might
0: be slightly smaller overall, but we may get more severe events uh, when they do arrive.
2: One of the, one of the things close to your heart, Sarah, is like wave energy. Um, so, like um, in terms of of a solution to to climate change, in a way, um, are we going to be able to harness like wave energy in Ireland anytime soon?
3: Yeah, like so uh renewables are uh you know the study of the potential of Ireland it's a huge potential in offshore wind and wind energy obviously the wind and waves are they're kind of interlinked in many ways um there's a huge uh potential for wave energy if the technology can be found that's robust enough to survive the harsh conditions off the west coast um and you know if you think about uh Waves like they're basically they're storing all of the energy, or they're storing you know from wind that blew thousands of miles away. Like that energy from that wind is stored in those waves, and so you know there's the potential to extract large amount of energy from that. And um, I mean, the real issue is survivability at sea. Um, How do you survive the harsh conditions that happen off the west coast of Ireland? And then second of all, a technology that actually you know, works effectively and they haven't cracked, quite cracked that yet. But there are lots of companies kind of in testing or, you know, um, testing, re- you know, prototypes and testing going to first technology ready phases that um, potentially will, yeah, bring uh, good news to Ireland. Because I think, you know, um, Ireland is the perfect or has like optimum conditions because of the wave climate. It's so, it's, it, there's so much energy um, in the waves, uh, even on the south coast, um, and it really could, could be something potentially Christ. in the future. Yeah, but offshore wind for now, uh, most of those are actually going to floating platforms rather than anchored. So actually, the waves, um, are an important consideration in that because they have to be able to survive oh. those too. Okay. Yeah,
0: and surfers, maybe in terms of the broader environmental picture, are getting a lot involved a lot with the ocean environment and things like say, for example. Uh, the crisis we have with the amount of plastic going into our environment at the moment?
1: Yeah, um, certainly. I mean, I think you look at anyone who's involved in the coast or in the sea, um, whether they're studying it or or, or working near it or on it, um, but we're all kind of form coastal guardians. So um, with my surf school, I often in the summer do surf uh, surf camps with, with the younger surfers. And after a couple of days, teaching them the basics about tides and winds and where waves come from and getting them in the, in the sea. Um, they, they really like it. I, I'm i part of the Clean Coast organisation. I'm a Clean Coast uh, ocean hero. I was given an award there just for, for this work with the young people, which is it's just nice that they've given me so much support and um, I'm no means of an environmental uh, warrior or anything like that, but it's because of my engagement with Clean Coast, I realised there's something I could do and it's, in, it's my office and so I like, I like to leave you know Trace Ireland are a pretty good outdoor ethic to have for any business operating outdoors in a sensitive area of special conservation like I do um, so on the fourth day of my surf camps I bring out the King Coast bags, I put the bibs on them and give them the pickers and go, right, guys, you're surfers now and you've got a special responsibility to take care of the coast. Excellent. It's not like people come in just maybe once a year um, who might, you know, might leave their litter there because they think someone else will pick it up or they're not too sure the tide's going to come in or something. You can forgive those people because they're just not aware of it, but surfers spend more time at the coast, so they've got a special responsibility, I feel, to, to take care of it. Um, So we just do a little bit of a beach cleanup where we look at what kind of rubbish is on the beach. And I mean, and I always um, tell the young people, um, we're not saving the planet. All we're doing is doing the right thing, I guess, and making a kind of a visual statement. And if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. And um, maybe just picking up one bag of rubbish is not going to solve the crisis of plastics in the oceans, which I'm sure a lot of listeners and a lot of people are very well aware of. But um you start to stop the problem at source with the young people. Um, because if I spend twenty minutes with the young person picking up cans of coke and packs of crisps, and you know, all oh, the plastic was in the ocean and it breaks down and the fish eat the plastic and we eat the fish, and you can see their little minds thinking they they just get it straight away. And hopefully next time that young person has a pack of crisps or a can of coke, they'll use a bin. But of course, once you put it in the bin, it doesn't disappear, it's going to the landfill. But I just think it's our whole um, mindset about the use of single-use plastics. And, you know, I think people then who engage with the natural... You asked me earlier, Noel, uh, about what is draws people to surfing. I think it's that, you know, you might see the sea in your doorstep there, but you don't have a way to engage with it. Surfing gives you that board, it gives you that key to, to getting in the ocean more often. And then suddenly you start to feel uh, there's something you can do about it. Clean coasts especially are... Ireland-wide, there's um, hundreds and hundreds hundreds of coast care groups all around, across the country um, doing the right thing, it's quite social, it's, it's quite nice and um, it, it's something I really recommend people check out, their their local uh, coast care group and also there's Two Minute Beach Clean which is um, if you've it's got one or two minutes at the beach, take three or four pieces of rubbish, take a photo, upload it to their Facebook page and it's about awareness uh, raising as well. That's fantastic. Well, we can include the links to those organisations on our
0: podcast website and recommend everyone to check that out. Well, I think uh, we've had a, an amazing amount of information there so much, so we might have to make two episodes out of this. But I've, I've really enjoyed it. found it so interesting. And, and thank you to you both for, for coming in. It's been really, uh, really worthwhile.
2: Yeah, really interesting. Thanks a million for coming in.
0: Yeah, no, thanks. Th- thanks, Liz. Thanks, Noel. Thanks for having us up here. For our climate summary this month, Paul Moore has the details on how our weather has been through 2019, and indeed over the last decade.
4: Here are the year's highs and lows for 2019 based on data from Eireann's 25 synoptic weather stations. The year finished mild in Ireland as December brought warmer than average temperatures everywhere. Rainfall amounts were mixed, but sunshine was generally above average. The year as a whole saw above-average rainfall and temperatures in most places. The months with generally above-average temperatures were January, February, March, April, July, August and December. May and September were near-average and the months with generally below-average temperatures were June, October and November. The sunniest place was in the southeast, where Johnstown Castle County Wexford recorded 1,608 hours of sunshine for the year, 13% above-average. Knock Airport, County Mayo was the dullest place, with 1,029 hours of sunshine, 14% below average. The wettest place for the year was Newport, County Mayo, with 1,796.6mm of rainfall, which is 11% above average. The driest place was Dublin's Phoenix Park, with 807.6mm, which is 4% above average. The wettest day of the year was at Moore Park, County Cork on the 14th of October, with 56.2mm of rainfall. The highest mean temperature for the year was on Shirken Island, County Cork, with a yearly mean temperature of 11.3 degrees Celsius, which is 0.2 degrees Celsius above its average. While the lowest yearly mean temperature was 9.0 degrees Celsius at Knock Airport, which is 0.5 degrees Celsius above its average. The highest temperature for the year was reported at Shannon Airport on the 27th of July, with 28.4 degrees Celsius. The lowest temperature was reported at Dublin Airport on the 31st of January, with minus 5.8 degrees Celsius. There were seven named storms that affected Ireland during the 2019 calendar year. Storm Eric in February, Storm Freya and Gareth in March, Storm Hannah in April, Storm Lorenzo in October and Storm Attea and Elsa in December. Globally, the surface air temperatures for December were jointly the warmest on record, along with December 2015. And for the calendar year 2019, it was the second warmest year on record for surface air temperatures, behind 2016. Australia stands out in 2019, as it had its hottest and driest year on record, which provided the conditions for the development of intense and widespread bushfires.
0: Very interesting, Paul. Many thanks for that.
2: Well, that's all we have time for today. Our thanks again to Sarah Gallagher and Seamus McGoldrick for joining us this month. Alan Bennett at Headstuff and the communications team at MetAaron. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, you can find more information about today's topic on our webpage at met.ie forward slash podcast.
0: You can subscribe to the podcast on the webpage or wherever you normally get your podcasts from and get in touch with us using the MetAaron Twitter and Facebook pages, using the hashtag Met Aaron Podcast or by emailing us at podcast at met.ie. Thanks for all your comments and suggestions so far. Playing us out this month are the Metair and Trad Band with an original composition by Donald Black titled Log Wafer or Windy Day.
2: Next month, we have a special episode where we go storm chasing in Tornado Alley. We hope you'll join us for that. But until then, thanks for listening.
0: And take care.